Welcome to the 14th CMS Pensions Lawcast in our current series. This lawcast focuses on member options and liability management for DB schemes. It's no surprise that COVID-19 has cast its shadow on this topic in recent months, and we'll cover that in this lawcast, but there were some clear trends and developments in the design and implementation of member options before COVID-19 struck, and as life hopefully returns to something more resembling normality over the coming months, we think those emerging trends are here to stay. We're going to consider the background to the member options landscape, a detailed consideration of some of the most common options available, as well as what's happening in practice and how to maximise your chances of success in carrying out a member options exercise. I'm joined on this lawcast by Laura McLaughlin and Thibaut Jeekings from CMS, together with Abigail Curry, who heads up Willis House Watson's member options team. Abigail has worked in this specialist area, helping trustees and companies to design member option exercises for over 10 years, and in that time has supported schemes in providing options to over 100,000 members. Member options exercises in DB schemes have been around in one form or another for many years. But in response to concerns that members might risk being disadvantaged by them, the Code of Good Practice on Incentive Exercises was published by the Incentive Exercises Monitoring Board, an industry-led group formed to look into this back in June 2012. The Code was subsequently updated in 2016 and has generally been seen as a positive and helpful addition to the member options landscape. It's supported by the pensions regulator, and although it's a voluntary code, it's been widely and consistently adopted. The code defines an incentive exercise as an offer or inducement to a member to change the form of their DB benefits in a way which is not ordinarily available to all members of the scheme and has as an objective the reduction of cost or risk for the scheme or its employer. Now, the objectives of the code and to ensure that exercises are carried out fairly that they're communicated in a balanced way, which members can understand, and that appropriate financial advice for members is made available so that high member engagement can be achieved. The code deals with two broad types of incentive exercise. Transfer exercises, which, as the name suggests, involve a member transferring their benefits out of the scheme, and so-called modification exercises, which involve the member changing the shape or perhaps the type of benefits that they have. Abigail, as someone who specialises in this area, how do you see the code and its impact? Thanks, Pete. So personally, I think the code has really helped improve standards across the industry. You know, this in turn has removed the concerns that some companies and trustees had about the reputational risk of implementing liability management exercises. So that they're now a lot more mainstream. Now, the code itself isn't an area that companies and trustees should be concerned about when implementing an exercise. You know, it primarily provides a good framework against which to operate. For options that are ordinarily available, as you've already said, the code doesn't apply. But in our experience, much of the code is still followed on a voluntary basis. Now, the concept of liability management or member option exercises has also evolved since the code was established, particularly in relation to the transfer option, with this option now much more integrated into scheme standard retirement processes. And this is an area where we've continued to see real growth and interest this year. And I'll, I'll come back to, to that a little bit later on in this session. Thanks, Abigail. 
the importance of member options was obviously thrown into much sharper focus as part of the freedom and choice changes to pensions back in 2015. Now, whilst those changes were primarily aimed at people with defined contribution benefits, clearly the extra flexibilities available meant that transfers from DB schemes in order to access those UDC options suddenly became a new route to access greater freedom in how pension benefits were taken. And finally, member options are also part of the toolkit for trustees and employers when thinking about their own de-risking targets and projects, perhaps simplifying benefit structures to make them easier to administer, or reducing the scheme's liabilities in order to make buy-ins and buy-outs more achievable, or just the funding requirements more predictable. I'll now pass on to Laura, who will look at one of the most common member options, Pension Increase Exchange. Thanks, Pete. So Pension Increase Exchange, or PI as it's typically referred to, is, as Pete said, one of the more popular member options that we've seen implemented by schemes. And I think it's fair to say the use of this option has become a relatively well-trodden path during the last few years, particularly since the advent of the code. A PI exercise involves offering members the option to exchange some or all of the non-statutory increases payable on their pension in payment for one-off uplift in the amount of their pension. Basically, a member is agreeing to give up increases that would be otherwise paid on their pension in the future in return for receiving a higher starting pension. Commonly, the increases given up are those relating to pension earned prior to 6 of April 1997, as there was no statutory requirement to provide increases on pensions in excess of GMP before this date. However, it can be any increases in excess of the statutory minimum that are surrendered. Therefore, for PI to be a viable option, a scheme needs to have a benefit structure which includes the provision of non-statutory increases. Other factors that are important from a legal point of view are the scope and timing of the PI exercise. The PI exercise does not have to be offered to all potential eligible members. In particular, you may want to exclude members with small pensions and some of the other options TBA is going to talk about later on in the law cast may actually be more suitable for them. What's helpful for employers and trustees, I think, is that the Pensions Ombudsman has supported the fact that a pie offer is made at the discretion of the employer and therefore certain members can be excluded from the offer. Clearly, however, it is important that trustees and employers are sure that any potential discrimination issues are covered off when establishing the members who will be eligible for the offer and those who will be excluded. In terms of timing, pie exercises can be offered as a one-off exercise or they can be integrated as part of the scheme's usual retirement process. Where the exercise is implemented as a one-off, it falls within the definition of what is considered to be a modification exercise under the Industry Code of Practice on Incentive Exercises. As Pete confirmed, the code is not legally binding, but our experience is that trustees and employers are keen to ensure compliance with this as a measure of what is expected as good practice when implementing a PI exercise. The code sets out a number of particular requirements that apply to PI exercises, which it's important to be aware of right from the start of structuring the exercise. The key requirement that applies under the code to PI exercises is the need for members to be provided with either advice or guidance from an independent financial advisor. And that depends on the nature of the exact deal that's being offered to members, whether it's advice or guidance that's necessary. As well as ticking off all the relevant requirements of the code, there are a number of legal issues in the implementation of the exercise, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of key ones now. The PI needs to be implemented in accordance with the formal requirements of the scheme's governing documentation. This may mean amending the scheme's rules. Whether this is actually necessary will depend on the particular construction of the increased provisions in the scheme's documents and other powers that sit alongside that, such as, for example, whether the PI could be accommodated under the augmentation power. 
However, most commonly we see prey exercises supported by an express amendment to the scheme's rules so that the offer is clear on the face of the scheme's documentation. Making an amendment in this way does, however, then raise issues in turn with the terms of the scheme's amendment power and whether there are any tricky restrictions in that power which could cause an issue with introducing the ability for members to agree to give up certain increases, albeit with their consent. The taxation consequences of accepting the pie offer are another area that needs to be fully communicated to members. The uplift to members' pension will count as accrual for the purposes of the members' annual allowance and lifetime allowance. Where a member has sought protection from changes in their lifetime allowance by applying for one of the types of fixed protection or enhanced protection available under legislation, the uplift will also count as accrual here, which could result in the member losing that protection. So these implications need to be clearly explained to members so they're fully aware of consequences when deciding whether or not to accept a pie offer. It's also helpful, I think, finally, to consider how a pie can fit alongside broader scheme issues or ambitions. An issue relevant for many schemes at the moment is equalising for the effect of GMP. It's worth considering how PI might fit into this, particularly where conversion of GMP is the proposed method for dealing with it. And Abigail is going to pick up on what she is seeing in practice here later on in the lawcast. The use of PI in this way also really effectively underlines how this exercise can be helpful as a means of not only reducing liabilities in a scheme, but also simplifying a scheme's benefit structure. This in turn can be a really useful step on a scheme's de-risking journey in assisting with the process of securing benefits with an insurer by removing complicated or unusual pension increase structures. There are a number of other options available that can also assist schemes with that process and I'll now hand over to Thibaut to talk you through some of these. Thanks Laura. So it's worth saying a few words about lump sum exercises and how they fit into member, the member options sphere before I move on to transfers. These can come in the form of small pot commutations, trivial commutations, or winding up lump sums. And as Laura mentioned, maybe a more appropriate option for members with small pensions. With lump sums, members get the benefit of replacing a very small pension with a cash lump sum. Schemes, on the other hand, reduce their liabilities, but primarily get the benefit of lowering administration costs and making themselves more attractive to insurers on their journey towards buyout. Lump sums aren't generally offered as exercises in their own right, unlike pension increase exchanges and transfer values, but rather in the case of trivial commutation or small pot commutation, might be part of a wider member options exercise or an option at retirement. Winding up lump sums can obviously only be offered when a scheme is in wind up, so they're driven more by other underlying projects such as buyouts or scheme mergers, which will lead to a scheme's wind up in their own right. In practice, many of the same considerations, for example, clear communication, uh, needing the rules to allow for the exercise will apply for lump sums as for pensions increase and transfer value exercises. Speaking of which, as we've heard, the other main area of interest in the member option sphere is transfers. From the member's perspective, a transfer out can give them the flexibility that they lack in a defined benefit pension scheme. For example, the opportunity to use drawdown instead of receiving an annual pension. Transfer exercises can be run across the entire scheme's deferred membership as a one-off exercise or offered as a standard option on retirement with individualised quotations provided as part of a retirement pack. Abigail will be talking a bit about trends in this area later on. Sometimes employers will, will also offer members an incentive to take the transfer value. 
for example, by offering funding to increase the amount that the member receives as the, as the transfer. But this is generally only a feature of one-off exercises rather than at retirement options. Where transfer options are offered as part of a one-off exercise, then once again, the code of practice on incentive exercises will be relevant. As Laura said, it's not compulsory to comply with it, but it's something that almost all employers and trustees will do in practice. So what are some of the key considerations that are coming up in the context of transfer value options for trustees and employers? Advice is always an important consideration. Transfers out of defined benefit pension schemes that meet the £30,000 value threshold require members to obtain appropriate independent advice. This is valuable as a member protection, but there's a lot for trustees to think about in the context of obtaining this advice. And Abigail will be talking a bit more about this. The scheme rules are another vital consideration. As lawyers, it's the first, first thing that we always think about. So the question here is, are trustees even able to allow the transfer exercise to go ahead under their schemes rules? In our experience, most pension scheme rules are flexible enough to allow it, but some may need to be amended, for example, to permit transfers at retirement where it would not be a statutory transfer. Market volatility is another key issue that we're seeing coming up. Brexit, COVID, markets have seen some pretty large fluctuations in recent times, and how this is to be managed needs to be considered. Trustees could find that the transfers end up being rather more expensive than the scheme expected due to guaranteed transfer values, or equally, you could, it could result in members feeling shortchanged when, they, when their transfer doesn't buy them as much as they thought it would in the open market. Another consideration is communications. It's always important to ensure that proper communication takes place with scheme members, but in the case, in, in the context of transfer exercises, um, engagement is always going to be key to the success of an exercise. And so clear communications that can actually reach members are vital. Communications are also important in the context of pension scams and the size of members' pensions. They'll often be a member, a member's pension will often be their biggest or second biggest asset, and inevitably transfers are targeted by scammers. So it's important that members understand the consequences of the transfer on them and also the risks behind it and that the transfer should be made to an appropriate scheme to avoid any potential for member disadvantage and or future complaints. Finally, discharge is a legal point that trustees will want to consider. The point of making the transfer out of the scheme from the perspective of employers and trustees is to ensure that the scheme's liability to the transferring member is fully discharged and so the scheme's liabilities are in turn reduced. So GMP equalisation is a key issue here. Helpfully, schemes are increasingly able to provide equalised transfers, but trustees will need to consider the impact of GMP equalisation, potential future judgments and make sure that they aren't hit with a future liability for GMP equalisation after making a transfer. In the context of non-statutory transfers, for example, transfers when a member reaches their normal retirement date, the discharge for a statutory transfer will not be available. And so trustees and employers will want to make sure that there's an appropriate discharge form that's signed by members before the transfer is made. 
So that completes a whistle-stop tour through how transfer exercises can benefit schemes and members and some of the key issues facing both trustees and employers. So now I'm going to hand over to Abigail, who will talk about what she's been seeing in practice in the member options sphere. Thanks, Thibaut. So in terms of what we've seen this year, you know, clearly there's no escape from the impact of COVID. It's already had a material impact on our lives. You know, thousands of redundancies have been announced across the UK, which is going to affect many, many families. Willis Towers Watson's recent 2020 DB Emerging Trends Survey found that the pandemic has already led to an increase in member activity. Four in 10 schemes have seen an increase in transfer requests and 35% of schemes have seen an increase in retirements. The current financial pressures have also resulted in companies starting to look to restructure their workforces. Now, I think this, together with rising state pension ages, is why we've seen an uptick in interest in the bridging pension option this year, typically with it being introduced as part of a package of options. Now, unfortunately, the financial pressures and the current uncertainties also provide a perfect environment for pension scammers, as Thibaut has already mentioned. You know, this is an area where there's been increased focus this year from the various regulators, and I certainly expect the risk of scams to be a continued focus next year, leading to more schemes thinking about how they can better educate, support and protect their members, particularly at retirement. Now, as I mentioned at the start of this session, you know, putting in place support for members at retirement is an area where we've continued to see real growth and interest this year. Now, when schemes start to do this, you know, following pensions freedoms, it typically came from a place of liability management, you know, extending the idea of the bulk transfer exercises and recognising that members transferring at retirement provide opportunities for risk and liability reduction. Now, although many schemes are still thinking about this support for financial reasons, in the last 18 months or so, there's been a real uptick in schemes putting in place retirement support more for paternalistic reasons. You know, schemes want to put in place support to help members make the right decisions at retirement, obtain lower cost financial advice and reduce the risk of members falling foul of scams. You know, as Thibaut has already said as well, this has led to an increased focus on improving at retirement communications with schemes increasingly using online communications and member self-service as well as schemes facilitating financial advice. Now, it's also worth noting that once a scheme has appointed a financial advisor, then as for any other service provider, that appointment should be monitored. There's a range of approaches that schemes can now take and deciding on the right approach for each scheme is an important part of the implementation process. Now, Contras have spent a bit of time there on the at retirement support. And, and I think this is in part because Following FCA changes in recent years, it's also now a lot harder for an IFA to give a member a positive recommendation to transfer unless the member's at retirement and unless there's some form of enhancement. Now, that said, in our experience, bulk transfer exercises, particularly where there's an enhancement, remain an important de-risking tool for schemes en route to buyout. Um, so just in terms of other options, in our experience, member engagement and take up of pie options has remained positive this year. In March, the IFA firms that schemes typically appoint seamlessly transitioned to work from home and the trend of video calling platforms has improved the member experience over recent months. Now, as Laura mentioned earlier, where GMP equalisation is achieved through conversion, we also expect a pie option to be a common feature 
And we've actually already started to see that in the early mover cases that are progressing through this year. So just to wrap up really today's session, I just wanted to end with some top tips. Now, I focus quite a bit on the transfer option at retirement. So let's start there. You know, firstly, ensure all parties are clear upfront who is paying for the advice, which members are eligible for it and what it will cover. I think this is particularly important for schemes with a mix of DB and DC members, where the drivers for putting in financial advice can be slightly different for those two groups. Decide whether it's a single IFA or a panel of IFAs that will be used. Now, although we've successfully put in place panels of IFAs for schemes with large number of members retiring each year, we generally recommend a single IFA is used as this is more efficient for the admin team. It makes the flow of data for the different parties easy to coordinate, provides greater clarity for members. They can see clearly who they should use and it results in lower ongoing monitoring costs. Pay particular attention to communications, you know, have a mix of paper and online communications. We all take on board information in different ways. So having a diverse and inclusive communication approach is important to maximise member engagement and understanding and clarify the approach for sharing the data between the IFA and the administrator. So those handoffs work really well and the member has a positive experience when the process goes live. And just one final tip from me, you know, whatever exercise it is that you are running next year, next year, make sure that you've got your IFA support in place early on. With more schemes approaching the market for at retirement support and with schemes progressing through their conversion and pie projects, I envisage a real uptick in demand for IFA support next year with only a limited number of IFAs with the experience and capacity to support schemes in this area. Getting to the front of that queue is going to be really important to avoid implementation delays. And I think at that point, I'll just hand back to Pete to wrap up today's session. Thanks, Abigail. And thank you for joining us for the 14th episode of the CMS Pensions Lawcast. We hope you found it interesting and useful and that you'll join us again for the next in the series, which will be on the Pensions Ombudsman. 